0: Welcome, everybody, to the Boss Lady Speaks. I am your host, Coach Joe, and I am thrilled to have Bob Rivard with me today. You are a longtime journalist, Bob, and an author, and the founder of a nonprofit media site called the Rivard Report, that really kind of exploded in uh, the town of San Antonio, where you are headquartered, but also uh, elsewhere given it's online. So where should we start? Like there's so much to talk about given that you have been a correspondent covering civil wars. I feel like you're like Churchill, you know, it's super exciting. All the way from that through Newsweek to Mm. San Antonio. There's so much we could talk about. But where should we start?
1: I guess we should start where we are, which is you sheltered in Sweden and me sheltered in Texas. And both of us wondering when life is going to return to some semblance of reality, um, yeah. My team uh, of twenty people here, um, who are generally very young and mm. uh, have not covered conflict, have been going twenty four seven since early March when the coronavirus hit here. Mm. It hit me too personally. I was an early case, but. uh, for 15 days in a row now in the city, like many American cities, we've had black lives matter protests and marches. So even though we're all working remotely and we haven't seen very much of each other physically, we're seeing each other all the time on zoom every day. And, um, their, their workload has never been, uh, larger or heavier or more important, I think, than it is right now. And, um, they've all between the pandemic and, um, and then the tremendous amount of social unrest and everything we're writing about, the desperate need for police reform in our city, and our country, yeah. um, they're really getting um, uh, their chops, you know, as journalists. Yeah. It's not business as usual.
0: You know, I, I, I have heard a lot of comparisons with the civil rights movement and 68 and and every time i hear that i'm thinking not quite i mean you've been there for both i think this i think this is different what do you think
1: you know the biggest difference uh in my mind is what technology has done um to both um the social process and to those of us who are reporting it i could go up into the mountains of El Salvador with the gorillas and disappear for three weeks. And there was no way to contact my editors and no way for them to contact me. And nor was there an expectation of that. Um, now, um, you know, there, there's a thousand tweets going out every 10 minutes from every March and, and, um, reporters are filing stories on smartphones as they, as they observe the story and, you know, the story that's on our website may be the 10th version of that story in one twenty-four hour news cycle. Yeah. It's, it's very different. What it doesn't allow for is the more literary narrative, um, nonfiction approach to storytelling <laughs> that isn't of the moment, that isn't expiring in the next hour and a half to give way to something else. And I think uh, today's journalists um, they uh they missed an era and i know i'm sounding nostalgic and old when you had time to report time to fill a notebook time to mm. think about it time to bang it out on a typewriter yeah and to exit it back to your country mm. and it produced a different kind of of uh of writing and reportage than we read today and i miss that that probably mm. just says something about me and my generation but but you're not you're not reading that very fine textured um, on scene. I'm going to witness this for you because you can't be here. Everybody feels like actually we were there. You know, I've downloaded mm-hmm. the videos. I watched it on on uh, my smartphone. Um, yeah, and I don't have time to read.
0: Yeah, I remember I grew up in a journalism family, and I remember my mother getting those Reuters printouts. I remember the sound of them. <laughs> When they came out, and she came with big rolls of paper, and she looked at them, and there was something extremely goosewill and charming about it, and very, um, very much a nod to the profession of what it like. You, you really have to be investigative. You really have to have an eye for what's news and what's not, what's pertinent and what's not. Um, do you think we'll get back to it? Do you think we'll get back to quality, unbiased, non-bought? Journalism.
1: Well, I think the quality is there, and I think the the journalists that I work with today that are in you know their twenties and thirties are absolutely as ethical as and um, and as aware of uh, their responsibilities as, as we were when when we were younger, and they're probably more articulate about it. But um, you know, I guess when uh, when when we were young we all thought we were going to be Susan Sontag or Ernest Hemingway. And um, I don't think the young journalists quite think of themselves in that literary genre. They, they come to my office, which is book lined and they call it the museum.
0: Oh no, you're kidding. I
1: I think they, they miss something by not having books in their hands uh, at their their bedstead and Mm -hmm. uh, in their satchels and, and always, you know, ready to open up a book and, and, and disappear into it.
0: But what do you think about the fact that there's so much free writing? I mean, there are many people who just happily blog for free. And then it really kind of undermines, if anything, salaries for journalists. There might be places that say, hey, I can get that for free. Why should I pay much at all?
1: Yeah, no, you know, I I was very fortunate that I was in a golden era of print journalism when newspapers and news magazines like Newsweek uh, the New Yorker, others, Time Magazine, they made money hand over fist. And um, they did it through advertising. Yeah. And of course, now advertising is, uh, you know, as ephemeral as everything else in, in the world. And that's, that's disappeared. But it paid, <coughs> it paid for um, newsrooms. Uh, we weren't going to get wealthy, but we were a profession. We were craft, craft people. Um, we, we could afford to um, join the middle class. And that was dramatically under, undermined by the disruption that the internet brought to not just that business, but every business. I remember um, when I was you know, the newspaper editor in town, watching young journalists go abroad into conflict um, for freelance rates, hoping that if they were able to film or photograph or, or grab a compelling story in the Middle East, places of extraordinary danger, Iraq, Afghanistan, that they could sell it back in New York um, for peanuts. And, um, I felt very badly about that, that people were risking their lives for next to nothing. And, uh, when I was a foreign correspondent, um, my life was completely underwritten. I didn't live luxuriously, but I lived to where I could work all the time without worrying about anything. And, um, that, that life, except for a very select few who might be at the New York times or the economist or, Mm -hmm. or somewhere that it's gone. And, um, that's i I lament its loss. We don't have the kind of reporting that uh that we once did. the b b c still does a good job. I listen mm-hmm. to the b b c all the time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and NAR has and the New York Times and Washington Post have some foreign correspondents, but they don't have anywhere near as many as they once did
0: How, What about al jazeera?
1: Well, you know that. Al Jazeera, uh, in my part of the world, I think it has less of an impact than it does in yours. It's really um, gone up and down and up and down again. And, and, and so um, it's on the radar, but it's not prominent. And um, television news in general uh, attracts an older demographic. Where Al Jazeera does better, I think, is um, attracting online eyeballs mm-hmm. and uh, people that, that do care about a non-U.S. perspective on the news, particularly in Washington, particularly in Trump and his foreign policies such as they are.
0: Yes. Uh but let's then let's bring it down a bit to the micro because here, you know, we we're here we're commenting on the state of the world, but let's let's look at you a bit a bit more now. So you you've done you've had all this experience as a journalist, and then you got up and you started a nonprofit media site. The Revard Report. <laughs> I've
1: had my share of adventures around the world, but I think this very hyper local uh, experiment that we launched almost nine years ago is maybe the most important work I've done. Uh, American newspapers were disappearing in regional cities. I was the longtime editor of the one in this city. Its absentee corporate owner, Hearst in New York, uh, was just in endless cycles of downsizing. Morale was terrible, there was no money to do anything. And the writing was on the wall. Um, Print newspapers were dead. And this model that American corporations came up with of putting on paywalls in front of websites, Mm -hmm. it wasn't working then. It's not working now. When I started this, there were a few um, other nonprofit uh, digital local media sites around the country, um, but not many. And now there's 230 They've just mushroomed all over, like after a storm, and mm-hmm. and they're all they're all uh, being operated or were founded by former newspaper and magazine journalists like myself, who are rooted in community and want to see you know quality, credible public service journalism continue. Uh, if you look at our site, we don't do the crime blotter, we don't do high school sports, we don't do sensational. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care about celebrity gossip or any of that it's really it's really news for the engaged citizen it's just a niche but it's an important niche and um you know uh we're thriving um but it's a difficult world we're a nonprofit because there's no profit to be made in responsible journalism truth be told and the way that we've found that we've been able to get community buy-in is to really make it a a a um a trust that the community itself owns that they feel ownership of so we're members supported we rely on foundations and philanthropy we do make money from our civic engagement events we do take advertising although the advertising is carefully curated and um, you know it's enough to keep 20 people gainfully employed I wish it was 40 but it's 20 people they're highly motivated they feel very uh, passionate about our mission and uh, they're well cared for. They're paid professionally with health care benefits. And that's the way it ought to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you, what is the next generation of it? Is it to, I don't know if there's such a uh, model for it, but can, is there a syndication of the Rivard report? Is there like, what, what is the next step for it?
1: Well, we've already helped um, others, uh, journalists and uh, community leaders in other cities launch their own version of the report. We're working with a group in Fort Worth, which is uh, the sister city of Dallas right now, and they're going to launch one. We helped Nashville, we helped uh, down on the Texas-Mexico border. And so I hope eventually that what you see happen is that all these local independent entities will be flourishing in their respective communities, and then we'll all network together. And that will create a critical mass, I think, about news and information sharing that'll be very valuable. So, for example, when you get into some a topic like police brutality, if we could all network with one another and share the data with one another, we would, in effect, have a national reporting database and network. And I, I think something like that can—it sounds complicated—it can develop very quickly once the pieces are in place. And so, I don't think I'll be part of that. Um, you know, I'm going to exit off stage here in the next year or two and and uh, get back to writing another book. But the next generation of people that are running these operations, I think. They'll, they'll think expansively along those lines.
0: So it, it, we're jumping between topics here, but of course, when you, you spoke of your book, uh, Trail of Feathers, is this going to be Trail of Feathers 2? Or are you doing something completely different?
1: I'm too young to chase killers anymore into the mountains of Mexico. I don't think that's going to happen as much as I'd like to think I could go do it. I think it's going to be something more introspective, something more reflective, uh, something more essay, essay ish. And um, uh, yeah, I need to tie a bow around things. And so um, I, I spend a lot of time in the Texas Hill country, which I know many of your listeners aren't necessarily familiar with, but it's, There's an incredible wildscape around the city of San Antonio, which is unusual for such a large urban metropolitan area to have this wild country that's depopulated. And it's kind of like, I guess, for those of your listeners or viewers who liked Westerners in the old days watching uh, cowboys and Indians, That's a lot of it was filmed out there. And we have a family ranch there, and I find it very conducive to go out there and work on the river and, and write. And that's what I'm looking forward to.
0: And 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 when when can we when can we uh, partake of this? What is our timeline? When can we pre-order the book, Bob? Well,
1: well, actually, you know, we're going to change the name of the report later this summer, in August, to the San Antonio Report, which has always been the legal name of it with the Internal Revenue Service uh, in, in Washington doing business as the Revard Report. But the next succession of leadership is in the pipeline. And I want people to see that, hey, this started out as a, a husband and wife blog, um, and, and thus had my name on it, and I had a brand. I guess you would say in the city, people knew me. But it's time for our people to understand, you know, to see that that the name reflects the fact that it really represents a city. It serves a city, and the next publisher and editor will be able to come along, and they won't be burdened by my last name and have to explain. Um, what that connection is and it will make it easier for people outside the city and for our search engine optimization and other things for people to realize, Oh, this is the, the journalistic entity, the nonprofit entity in San Antonio. So that's coming. Uh, the leadership changes will follow pretty quickly over the next year. And, and, um, I'll probably write a column again for about a week. Uh, I mean, a year, a weekly column for a year, just to keep my hand in the game. And I'll, I'll stay on the board of the nonprofit, but, uh, I'm hoping we turned 10 years old in February of 2022. And I hope by then that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, riding off into the sunset.
0: <laughs> like lucky Luke. Right? Like, yeah. You know, i never, I remember being a kid finding, uh, finding, you know, comic books from the fifties by David Crockett. And we would invent the little hats and all. And then I ended up living in that city. It was, it was Epic to walk into the Alamo. It's it, it really is a city to that has so much um going forward, if you think about going forward, but also so much history and background that's reverberated throughout the world. So I I, I see good things ahead for the San Antonio report for sure. But um, you know, just just to kind of spino you know, tying a bow around all of it. Having covered as much as you've covered over the years and having seen trends and movements that's happened in society, either locally or globally, there's got to be a certain Nostradamus sense to you. Like, what do you see coming? And how do you think we can best use our voices and our own reflection to do what you're doing, give back to the community, create a positive vibe and a positive conversation that will aid everyone. What do you see coming?
1: You know, for all the contemporary reading I do and trying uh, to be uh, conversant and sensitive and understanding to all the new dynamics, including the retelling of history and certainly the Alamo (laughs) is one uh, chapter in history that desperately needs to be retold and is retold because it is mythic it's all about resistance and endurance, but it also cut out all of the, the Mexicans and vilified them, and uh, Mexican-Americans today consider it a shrine to racism. So uh, that, yeah. needs, that needs to be said. But I find myself reading more and more history, and um, certainly uh, it's a lot easier to understand the dynamics of Europe in the 1930s after having understood what happened there in the 40s. And, um I'm looking at the United States right now and trying to understand it from thirty thousand feet, which is not easy because um you if you if you close your eyes for twenty four hours, God knows what the president has tweeted and what what the reverberations of that are or will be around the world
0: we just conf- so- you d- you just confessed our colors there uh Bob. <laughs> right no. I have to say, of course I agree yes.
1: And, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, we are in a a momentous time and it's unmistakable in it's characteristics and it's, it's, it's potential for laying the seeds for much longer term, uh, repercussions to me is profound. Mm -hmm. We will see in November with the election, Mm -hmm. um, Which way the country is going to go? It's going to go one way or the other, intensely divided and polarized. There's no secret about that. But what's going to prevail? Return to the norms and the values that have defined the United States through much of the 20th century and early 21st century, Mm -hmm. made us a, for better or worse, a global citizen. Um, Or are we going to become more nationalistic, more xenophobic, Mm -hmm. uh, more militaristic in the streets, more divided by race, um, Mm -hmm. politics, et cetera. Um, And, you know, those stories all reverberate locally, uh, Johanna. We're two and a half hours from President Trump's wall with Mexico. um, When all of the migrants from Central America came fleeing desperately up through Mexico, San Antonio was the gateway city. This is where they all came first before they were dispersed until they were confined into camps. And so these stories that uh, that are echoing around the world, many of them uh, start and finish right here. And so local journalism has been redefined as well. And we're, I'm very cognizant of the role that we need to play in reporting on those and understanding them in a, in a uh, larger historical context.
0: Do you have any sense of which way it will tip?
1: I'm a glass half full guy, as they say in the United States. I'm an optimist, and um, I believe that uh, the voters will will, um, usher Mr. Trump off the the political stage in Washington, but he'll walk right off that stage onto another stage of his own making. I'm just speaking professionally here uh, as a journalist and not representing um, the nonprofit, but Joe Biden is a vice president, not a president. If you follow American politics, there's a big difference between the two. Um, He looks good mostly when compared to anybody but Trump, which is the situation we're in. When you compare him to the stature of Barack Obama, uh, when he broke onto the scene in his eight years, uh, he's not a Barack Obama, and he's not going to seize the imagination of our country, our young people, or the world. But he is who he is, and, and right now he's the anti-Trump, mm-hmm. and that's the two forces that are clashing in the United States, and we will see how it prevails. But if it were happening today, I think you'd see president you'd see Joe Biden being sworn in as president.
0: Well, we shall see this has been very interesting. I might invite you back again after the election, just for us to reflect on what happened. That could be a very interesting conversation. But I thank you for today so much uh, on behalf of myself and my listeners of The Boss Lady Speaks. I am your host, Coach Joe, and we'll see you next time. If you liked this episode of The Boss Lady Speaks, and if it helped you, make sure to subscribe to get more episodes like these and do share them with others.